we'll just focus uh, with God's help again on verse 1. Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Who has bewitched you? Now, we saw last Lord's Day evening who these uh, Galatians were. And like most of ourselves here tonight, they were a Celtic people. They are, or were essentially, our cousins. The word Galatia is the same word as Celta, which means the land of the Gale or the land of the Gaul. And Paul speaks to them here very much in their own language. They were a people in a superstitious age that were renowned for their superstition, their belief in spells and the evil eye and things of that kind. And Paul describes them here as having come under two spells. And we saw the first one of these last time. The first spell they come under was a, a good spell. You'll remember that the word spell means a story. And the good spell is, of course, the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds us here at the end of verse 1 that they came under that spell when Jesus Christ was portrayed or graphically presented before them as crucified. The word means to placard something. So the Lord Jesus Christ was lifted up, placarded as crucified. Now, of course, the Lord was lifted up in his crucifixion. He is also lifted up in the proclamation of that crucifixion. And as Paul preached the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit at that very time was drawing them to the Christ that he portrayed. That, of course, is our prayer and it's our desire every time that the gospel is preached, that the truth of God, especially God's salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ, would so work in your hearts that the Holy Spirit, not another spirit, but the Holy Spirit would draw your own hearts to be fascinated, charmed, transfixed, and altogether won over by the message of the truth. So the Holy Spirit was drawn them. They were drawn to the spell, the good spell, the gospel. And the result of that was that they received the messenger. Paul describes how they received himself. Uh, you'll remember that they would have plucked out their eyes and given them to him. It was a sickness that took him to Galatia to preach, but through that mysterious providence, churches were planted in Galatia. They loved the messenger who brought them the word of God, as much as they would have loved, as it were, in a sense, he says, Christ himself. Not as much, but in the same way as. He says, you received me as an angel from heaven, even as Christ Jesus himself. You recognised that I came to you with the truth. And as well, of course, as receiving the messenger, they received the message, which was, of course, Christ crucified. Christ dying for sinners. Justification by faith, if you like, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a great spell to come under, and there are many of you here tonight under the spell of the gospel, and we thank God for that. 
Our prayer is that all of us would come under the spell of the gospel. But sad to say, in the churches of Galatia, they were coming under a second spell. Not a good spell this time, or a gospel, but an evil spell, or a bad spell. It's translated here as bewitched. Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Which means, who has cast a spell upon you? This time, of course, he's not referring to the Holy Spirit, who brought them under the power of the good story. He is referring to an evil spirit that is bringing them under the power of an evil story. A pseudo-gospel, not the real gospel at all. That's why Paul refers to it in chapter 1 and verse 6 as a different gospel. And you'll notice, I think I drew attention to this last Lord's Day, but I can't remember. You'll notice how quickly Paul comes to his theme. There's usually a prayer and a giving of thanks and um, things like this that are, are preliminaries, if you like. Now, I don't say that in a dismissive way, but they're preliminaries to every letter except this one. I marvel, he says in verse 6, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. It's a different kind of good news, but he says it's not really good news at all. It sounds like good news. It's very like the good news that you had, but he says, I want to tell you that it is not good news at all. The fact of the matter is that some people, some teachers, had come into the churches who were placarding Christ in a different way, to the extent that it was actually a different gospel. Now, if this kind of thing was easy to spot, there wouldn't be so many warnings about it. It would be crystal clear and straightforward. But it's not. There are many subtle variations of the gospel which are actually fatal. The world of medicine is like that. There are some things that you can receive into your body to do you good, change it a little bit, and it'll kill you. The truth of God is like that. There are changes to it. They're all harmful. They're all deadly in their tendency. And they will actually be deadly unless they're checked. So this different gospel which seemed like the original, is in fact not a gospel at all. And it's been so destructive already in the Galatian churches that Paul is concerned for their eternal welfare. In chapter 4 and verse 11, you'll notice that he says, I am afraid for you, lest I have laboured for you in vain. Now, these are really solemn words. I'm afraid for you, he says, lest I have laboured for you in vain. Now, there's a lot in that word of labouring and in the idea of labouring and travail and um, it's connected with pregnancy and so on, which I'll come to just a little later on. But he says that in case, he says, I'm afraid for you in case I've laboured for you in vain. And again, in verse 20, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. 
his tone in some ways has been tender, especially in the preceding verse, 19, where he says, my little children, now here you go again, you've got the travail and the pregnancy, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ has formed you, I'd like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Now sometimes people ask, does Paul think that all the people that he writes to are saved? The answer to that is very simple, really. He accepts the profession, the Christian profession of those who make it. And he assumes that they are all believers. But he acknowledges that some may not. Because that's the way churches always have been. That's the way churches are, and that's the way churches will always be. There are sheep and goats, not just in the building, but in the actual membership of the Lord Jesus Christ's church. There are sheep and the goats amongst the baptized. There are sheep and goats amongst the unbaptized. There are sheep and goats amongst the membership. He writes to them under the assumption that their profession is real and true, because that's how we deal with each other. But here and there, he just puts in a word of warning here to make sure that they make sure that they make their calling and election sure. And we've all got to take that to heart. I mean, there's not a day goes by that we don't work at our faith, labour at it, proving to ourselves, proving to others that we are indeed who we claim to be, and that is the children of God. You can never, as it were, rest back and say, well, that's it, I've arrived, nothing more needs to be done. Labour to make your calling and your election sure. Now, I want to look with you at the messengers that were coming into the church in Corinth and the message that they actually brought. First of all, the messengers. Now, Paul's names for them vary. In chapter 2 of the letter, he referred to them as false brethren. The fact of the matter is that these teachers seemed to follow Paul everywhere he went. He had hardly planted congregations in Corinth when they appear in Corinth. He had hardly been to Galatia when they appear in Galatia. He had hardly been in Colossae when they appear in Colossae. In Thessalonica when they appear in Thessalonica. Everywhere he goes, they go. That doesn't really surprise us in a way. In one way it does, in another way it shouldn't. Because wherever God sows the good seed of the gospel, the devil sows the tears. It's always that way. God works, the devil works. Motivated, as he always is, and as we saw recently, by his sheer hatred for anything that carries God's name. So if God's at work, the devil is at work too. Now these false teachers had credentials, or at least they claimed them. They claimed to represent the Jerusalem church, and they claimed especially to represent the Apostle James, who appeared to have the closest connection with the Jewish group of Christians. And they claimed themselves to be real Christians, the Jerusalem church to be the only real and true church, and that Paul was not really a proper apostle. That the proper apostles were the apostles who had followed the Lord Jesus Christ around in his ministry for these precious three years. Paul just appeared on the scene and he planted churches that 
seemed to them in Jerusalem to be problematic. False brethren, Paul calls them. He also calls them false apostles. These are the same ones that appeared in Corinth. Now if you just turn back a couple of pages in your Bible, you'll find the passage that we read from 2 Corinthians and chapter 11. You'll notice in verse 4 that these are coming preaching another Jesus. Now you'll notice he keeps the same name, another Jesus. So they're still preaching Jesus. But he's not the one that we've preached. And in verse 13 he calls them false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Now the word apostle means really a messenger. So these are false apostles, but they are transforming themselves. They're able to do that into messengers of Christ. And Paul says in verse 14, he says, well, that is no wonder, he says, that they do this. It's not beyond the power of people who are not Christians to appear as Christians. In fact, he says, Satan, who is the prince of darkness, you'll remember, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, of knowledge, of understanding, and of goodness. Not a remarkable thing that the prince of darkness could so appear as an angel of knowledge, of purity, and of light. And if that is so, he says in verse 15, it's no great thing and no great surprise if his ministers, people who are really doing his bidding with a false gospel, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Satan made himself a, a minister of light. He did this, of course, from the beginning. It's a very strange thing that Eve, um, well, she was attracted to the serpent because the serpent, we're told, was more cunning. Now, the word cunning in the, in the King James Version doesn't carry the idea that the word cunning carries now. That's the problem sometimes with these words. We think that that means crafty, but cunning didn't mean crafty. It meant skillful. The, the serpent itself as an animal was um, something more to look at than any other animal that God had made. Now, the serpent is not like that now, but that's because it's cursed. But originally there was something about the serpent in its movement and in its stature that, that was attractive. And she was looking at the animals. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem arose when she became conscious that there was a communication from the animal towards herself. And that's because Satan had used the, just to change the figure, he used the smartest horse in the stable uh, to get into her mind. And she's conscious of thoughts that went there before. And these thoughts were promising good things, promising knowledge, a new experience, a new level of knowledge, a new kind of knowledge, a new kind of experience that she had never had before. He charmed her, fascinated her, he cast a spell on her, and he made her believe that the lie was the truth. 
and that the truth of God was actually a lie. The rest we know, and <clears throat> the rest we live out from day to day. He cast a spell. Now this spell is being cast again in Galatia, with a subtle new gospel which is beginning to fascinate and charm the hearers. Now I mentioned a minute ago that by their nature uh, delusions and deceptions are not easy to detect. We're told in the end times that there will be a great delusion and um, it will pretty much catch everyone. Great delusion. Uh, Christ speaks of false Christs who would come. And he speaks of deceptions that would, if it were possible, deceive even the elect. They're so deceptive that even the elect are in danger of falling for them. Peter, in his second letter, tells us to beware of teachers who creep into the church so that they get in. They get in because of a lack of carefulness and a lack of vigilance, but they've got their own agenda. That's why they creep. They creep around because they, they, they can't tell everybody what they're really wanting to do and what their agenda actually is. They pass themselves off in a certain way. But he tells us that their words are, in the Greek, plastic. The word is plastoise, which means plastic words. So they, they use evangelical reformed words, but they never quite mean what genuinely reformed and evangelical people mean. Slippery difficult to catch but they're always out to modify the gospel and to bring you into their way of thinking Satan beguiled Eve and these teachers beguile us too to beguile and to deceive means that you create a virtual reality Satan effectively did that for Eve, he created a virtual reality about what the world really was who she was who she could be, and who God actually was. That's what deception is, creating a virtual reality. And these ministers are doing that in the Galatian churches. To, ex to the extent that even Peter and Barnabas were for a, for a while taken up with what they were doing. Not necessarily believing what they were believing, but still falling into line with it. You'll notice um, in verse 11 of chapter 2, and this was happening in Antioch, and I just said to you that this is happening in every single church uh, where the gospel is being planted. When Peter came to Antioch, he says, chapter 2, verse 11, I was withstood him to his face. Oh, this is an amazing thing, a, a confrontation between two apostles. We have to remember that the apostles were only infallible in their writings and in their teachings as the Holy Spirit of God gave them that. That doesn't mean they were perfect in their lives. No, he says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Why? Well, he says, before certain men came from James, now that was their own claim that they had come from James, I'll come back to that. Prior to that, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. That's with Gentile Christians. But when these messengers came, he withdrew himself and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So instead of sitting with Gentile Christians, as he should have done, as he did do 
and as he ought to have been always happy to do because there's no nationality as such in the kingdom of Christ. It transcends nationality, transcends languages, ethnicities and people groups. I mentioned to you last week, today's world is dividing people all the time into groups, ethnicities, behavioural norms and whatever. But he separated himself. And the rest of the Jews, in verse 16, also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now that was fear. They would only sit with Jewish Christians in case they would offend these powerful new people who appeared to be running the show. Churches can be taken over very quickly by people who have a pseudo-gospel. So this is obviously a dangerous situation. And again, just by way of setting the background, since this was a new gospel, it was vital that they would discredit the person who had brought the gospel originally. Paul is nothing, and he is a nobody, just as they attacked him in Corinth. That's why Paul had to say things like, I am not inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, and he's being harsh on himself there, he says, yet I am not in knowledge. Or again, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why, he says, am I boasting because I don't love you? God knows, he says, I'm boasting because I do. And I want you to remember what it was like when I brought the gospel to you and how you came under its power and the effect that it had upon you. And they are trying to discredit me and they are trying to subtly alter the gospel. Now, none of that was new and, of course, it's still around. And these people were saying, like I hinted earlier, that Paul just was not a genuine apostle. And you'll notice that they're very zealous, these messengers, for their own version of the gospel. We're told in chapter 4 and in verse 17, that's of Galatians, that they are very zealous. They are very zealous. Chapter 4, verse 17, they zealously quote you there. They're trying to get you on the side, he says, but for no good. Yes, he says, they want to exclude you. That's from my fellowship and from the truth that was established amongst you so that you would be zealous for them. They're party people. They want your allegiance. They want you to identify with them because they like things of that kind. They, they want you to fall at their feet and acknowledge them as your rulers and your leaders. But he says it is good to be zealous in a good thing, always, but not to be zealous for parties and names and labels. Well then, as Peter says, these people are promising you freedom, but really they themselves are servants of corruption. Now you'll notice too from the beginning of Galatians that this kind of falling away is, is not a future possibility, it's a present reality. In, in chapter 1 and verse 6, this is what he's saying, that all this is going on 
just as he's writing. I marvel, he says, and he's genuine he's, he's genuinely amazed at how quickly the church changed. I marvel that you're turning away so quickly from him who called you, that's God, in the grace, the free grace of Christ, to a different gospel. He's marvelling. And as well as marvelling, we have to understand that he's grieving about the situation too. You know, friends, a, a true minister of the gospel will say to you that his greatest joy in the world is to see people following the gospel. Honestly, sincerely, and wholeheartedly. There is nothing comparable with it. As John said in his third letter, it's just a tiny little letter, the last of John's letters at the end of the New Testament, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And John had received that message as an old man that the church that he had planted was full of people who were walking according to the truth. And if there is no greater joy than that for a minister of the gospel, there is no greater grief than to see people who were once promising, promising so much and looking like they were really seeking the kingdom of God first. In fact, appearing as though they loved the Lord Jesus Christ, these people going back and falling away. I remember myself once in a church meeting a person that I hadn't seen for many years. And when I saw this person last, they seemed to be full of the Lord, full of the joys of the Lord and full of the gospel. When I met them then, this was probably about seven or eight years afterwards, they didn't need to speak. I just knew on their face that this was a different person. Because sometimes that kind of thing is actually written on the face. Just as coming near to the Lord can be written on your face, so can drifting away be written on the face. And I knew it before the person spoke. Sad to say speaking with the person, only confirmed it, that there had been a move away from the gospel to something else. I remember a minister telling me many years ago, he was a minister in the Church of Scotland, and he told me that he had been um, preaching the gospel faithfully, and I have no doubt that he, that he was doing so, for a period of seven or eight years, and again he thought, you know, he was seeing the prayer meeting growing, he was seeing growing interest, and and then he received a call and went elsewhere. And he says, I couldn't believe it. He said, within a few months they had called a minister who was preaching a completely different gospel. He said, it was night and day to what I was preaching. And he said, within, within a short space of time, the people who seemed like they were so eager to learn and wanting to know about the truth and listening avidly to the gospel, he says, they were just gone. They had gone cold. And he couldn't believe it. And I could tell as he spoke to me that he was really so grieved about it. So grieved because there's no grief like it. If it's a joy to hear your flock walking in the truth, it's a grief to hear that they have left it. And that's the grief that he has here. I mean, look at chapter 4 and verse 19. These, these amazing but poignant verses. And, and they're so full of feeling. You, you can feel the feeling yourself when he says in verse 19 my little children notice he doesn't want to let them go he's afraid that they're drifting and leaving but he can hardly bring himself to accept it he says my little children 
for whom I labor, labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. What does he mean by laboring in birth again? Well, that just simply means that he had labored in birth already for them. When did he labor in birth already for them? Well, when he first preached the gospel to them. You remember the sickness that took him to Galatia and he preached. Did he just preach? No, he prayed. Did those who were with him as fellow missionaries and laborers, did they pray? Yes, they prayed. What did they pray for? That the gospel would be blessed. And lo and behold, the gospel was blessed. Or to put it another way, Christ was formed in them. Here he's praying that Christ would be formed in them again because Christ, as he saw it, was already formed in them. That's, that's just a vivid description of a new birth. Who was carrying these children? The apostle was, and those who were praying with him. Who was the child, or who were the children? These people who were born again in Galatia, they were the children. And children are not born unless there's a pregnancy. And this is something that I think we don't understand. It's not enough for me to preach unless I pray. And it is not enough for me to preach and pray unless you pray too and pray with me. When Zion is in travail, she brings forth children. And that travail is just a reference to being made ready to bring children into the world. I, I spoke to you just a couple of weeks ago, not in connection with this, but in connection with something else about uh, how a woman's body becomes ready uh, from conception to giving birth. Everything in her body is geared towards the process of giving birth, even to the point where Solomon says that her breasts are filled with milk prior to the birth itself. Um, God begins to work, and he works through our prayers and our travail. That, te that lesson was powerfully taught to Ezekiel in the vision of the valley full of dry bones. A lot happened to the bones, but they didn't have life until he prayed. And it's prayer that will work new birth. Friends, I, I can't rest content here. How could I, even in this gathering, until we come to know the Lord? That's what this is all about. It, it's not an exercise. It's not an exercise in me doing this and you sitting or exposing yourself to it. This is about placarding Christ in the prayer that the Holy Spirit of God would cast the good spell upon you and draw you into his kingdom. And to that end, Christian friends, brothers and sisters, pray and travail that children would be born here as they were in Galatia. But lo and behold, just a short while afterwards, Paul says, I'm having to travail again. I'm having to travail again to see the image of Christ in you, as I thought I saw it before, because you're losing that image. And again, let that be burdens upon us as Christians. You know, we shouldn't be easy in accepting backsliding. We shouldn't just watch and say, well, such and such a man or such and such a woman or a young boy or a young girl is drifting away from the gospel. Well, 
Were these people a burden to us before they came to the gospel first? Yes. Ought not all of them to be a burden upon us until they come back to the gospel again? Yes. And maybe God is saying to yourself, even as a parent or a brother or a sister of such a person, to travail again with God until you see the image of Christ being formed in him again. And you know sometimes to see someone coming back is almost greater than to see them coming in the first place. That's a wonderful thing to know. But he's anxious concerning it. He says, I am afraid for you, lest I have laboured in vain. But that's enough about the messengers, for now anyway. What about the message? <laughs> well, before looking at its content, I, I want to look a little more, actually, at its nature. He calls it a different gospel, which is not actually another gospel. So it's a form of good news, but it's, as they would say today, it's fake good news. Fake good news. But it still passes as the gospel. Why? Because it actually holds to the centrality of Jesus Christ himself. It still holds to the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you just go back again a couple of pages to these people in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 4, I drew your attention to the fact that he refers to another Jesus. Verse 4, for if he who comes, if a messenger comes to you, an approved minister from Jerusalem or whatever, and he preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you seem to put up with it. Now you'll notice that he doesn't say another Christ or another Messiah. He says another Jesus. That's interesting. So they're not preaching another Messiah. These people are not saying that Jesus is the wrong Messiah or anything like that. They're not saying that he wasn't the Son of God or anything like that at all. Nothing like that. They are actually preaching another Jesus. The same person but somehow different. Same person, but somehow different. Jesus is at the centre, but not the Jesus Christ that we know. Jesus, the Messiah, as prophet, priest, and king. One thing you'll notice in current evangelical and reformed churches is the constant use of the name Jesus and the near disappearance of the title Christ. Nearly all the time when Paul speaks about our Saviour, he refers to him as Christ or as Jesus Christ. With one or two exceptions, just one or two, the only times he refers to Jesus are when he's speaking about a historical context where the man called Jesus worked. The rest of the time he gives him his title and he gives him his office. You seldom find people referring to Christ They'll speak about Jesus all the time. But who is this Jesus? Is he the same one that we find in the Gospels and in the letters? Is he Jesus the Christ and Jesus the Messiah? This Jesus is 
less offensive. And there's no doubt that the new Jesus that was coming into Galatian churches was less offensive too. There's something much less offensive about using the name Jesus all the time anyway. I mean, it, it just brings his humanity before you all the time. All the time. And he becomes your friend and your friend alone. He's certainly not your judge, really. He's absolutely your friend, your helper, your counsellor. And that's all that he actually is. You'll notice that even Satan's first web of deception didn't contain all lies. He's clever enough for that. And you'll notice too that these teachers are trying to avoid persecution themselves. If you move forward to chapter 6, now the reason we're jumping around so much here is because we're actually trying to lay a foundation for studying the letter. Believe me, well I think anyway that it's easier to look at the good spell and the bad spell before we look at the letter rather than just jumping in at the beginning. But if you move forward to chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul says that as many as decide to make a good showing in the flesh, and that's a bit difficult at this point to understand, but he's referring to circumcision. These new teachers are pushing circumcision. These would compel you to be circumcised only so that they may not suffer persecution themselves for the cross of Christ. Now, that's a mysterious thing, but they are trying to avoid persecution. They've got a false gospel that makes life easier, even if there's a little pain, shall we say, at the beginning. It makes it easier in ways which we'll come to in a minute. But this false gospel has Jesus at the centre. But all false gospels either add to Jesus or subtract from Jesus. They either add or subtract. And there are many different ways in which that can be done. Now I think personally the main way in which it's done today is not exactly the way it was done in Galatia. And when it comes to studying the letter that doesn't matter too much for reasons we'll see. But in our day, there's a definite tendency in Reformed and Evangelical churches to take away from Christ rather than to add to Christ. There are ways of adding to Christ. In some charismatic churches, they won't even believe you're a Christian unless you speak in tongues. Now, I would say quite boldly that I don't think what charismatics call speaking in tongues has anything whatsoever to do with speaking in tongues as the Bible speaks about it. I think speaking in tongues was a supernatural, spirit-given gift to speak the Bible in ordinary human language that these people did not possess before, period. And that that died with the writing of the scriptures. But there are some who won't accept that you're even a Christian unless you are able to speak tongues as they call them. In some reformed churches years ago they wouldn't actually let you forward to the Lord's table unless you had a specific text that you felt was compelling you to go forward to the Lord's table. So it wasn't enough to go in the simple faith that you had been transformed by God to value the Lord, to value the Lord Jesus Christ and to desire to partake of the supper. You had to have a special text that was compelling you as an individual to go 
That was adding something, was it not? It was adding something. <clears throat> of course, there are churches which add good works on as a qualification for being a Christian. Notably, the Roman Catholic Church and other churches too. But in our circles, that's not the danger. There is a real danger in our church. And by saying danger, I'm not saying something that's around the corner but not here. I'm talking about something that's here. Very much here and now. Something that is perverting us from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the proclamation of a different Jesus. It's a Jesus that is really quite unconcerned regarding obedience in the lives of his people. Quite unconcerned about holiness in the lives of his people. Now I can't put it more starkly to you, to you than a quote that I read just very, very recently. The quote is this, Christ cares more about your happiness than about your holiness. What do you think of that statement? That statement is so far wrong I haven't a clue where to begin. It's wrong everywhere, and it's wrong in every way. It still manages somehow to sound a little plausible, but it's so wrong I don't know where to start. But Christ cares more about your happiness than about your holiness. But it's kind of typical, reformed and evangelical sloganeer. Because there's a Christ being preached. I've no doubt about it. A Christ being preached who does not require repentance. And when I'm saying that it's a Christ minus, that something is taken away by Christ, let me be specific and say that it's kingship that it's being taken away from him. His right of kingship and the fact that he is a king and that he must be received as a king. In other words, the, the Jesus that is being preached is a Jesus that only requires you to believe in him as a priest who can forgive sins. And he is that. But he's not concerned with you embracing him as a king who commands your allegiance. That doesn't really matter so much. That is another Jesus. That is another spirit who's weaving that. That is another spell it sounds like a good spell because Jesus is still at the centre of it, because it, but it is a bad spell because it is taking away the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it always sounds good because these people will use the name of Jesus a hundred times in a sermon. And you'll think it sounds evangelical and reformed, and it most certainly is not. Because another Jesus means another gospel, and it means another spirit. Listen, friends, this may sound quite basic, but, well, it is basic, but really, if anyone tells you that you can get to heaven without holiness and obedience, that's a lie. That's a lie. If someone tells you what I've just read, that Christ cares more about your happiness than your holiness, that's a lie. If someone tells you that you don't need to keep the Ten Commandments to get to heaven, all you need is to believe in Jesus, that's a lie. Plain and simple, it's a lie. These things are ruining souls in their hundreds and in their thousands. To bring young people especially, because it seems that these people want the following of young people especially for whatever reason, to bring hordes of young people into membership just because they now believe in Jesus, even if they show no evidence of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, is to be murdering the souls of these young people. That's all you're doing. You're murdering them. 
That's why Paul speaks as he does. I mean, you can sometimes wonder at the way he charges in with verse 6. And it's not just that he marvels that they're turning away so soon from the gospel to a different gospel. But he pronounces an anathema in verse 8. If we, he says, or even an angel from heaven. Now, he's not saying that because it could happen. Unless he's referring to a dark angel which would be more strictly speaking from hell. But suppose, suppose any angel appeared to you preaching any other gospel or any other Christ than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now, you could say, and some people do say, well, that's Paul just getting carried away with emotion. Well, you'll notice that he says it a second time. As much as though he's imagining an objector saying, do you mean that? And he says, well, yes, I do. As I have said before, so now I say again, I mean it. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Because the glory of God is at stake and the souls of men are at stake. You're turning away. The word means, it's a military word, which actually means that you change your allegiance. In the House of Commons, they talk about crossing the floor. In a debate, they'll refer to crossing the floor, or you should cross the floor to the other side. In the military, it was just moving from one army to another, and the technical term for such an expression was a turncoat. That's what Paul says. I can't believe you've become turncoats. I can't believe you're turning away from what you really loved and esteemed and embracing something different. And why shouldn't he be zealous about it? I mean, if these people were zealous to proselytize on their side, why on earth should he not be zealous to make sure that they stay loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ as their prophet, because they've got to do what he says, as their priest, who alone can forgive their sins, and as their king, who demands absolute and unconditional adherence. That's the Christ. And any other Christ is a deficient one. doesn't matter how often you use his name. It is deficient. Now, what was the motive of these people? Well, their motive was twofold, just briefly. First of all, it's always tempting to substitute um, religion for spiritual life. And to substitute a religious activity for real sanctification. It's always easier to light a candle and to burn incense than it is to actually pray. And it's always easier to offer a, a sacrifice than it is to repent. Religion is far easier than spiritual living. And for these people, it was easy to conform to Jewish religion by just keeping the ceremonies doing the things that the Jewish culture wanted you to do. And, well, can we not just accommodate this into Christianity? That's, that's where the Roman Catholic Church started itself to seriously degenerate, when it started to incorporate paganism into Christianity. The original missionary drive of the church in the early centuries was conquering paganism. There was a shift towards accommodating paganism, and that was the end of it. Um, let's take a feast like the uh, solstice uh, of the sun god, we'll convert it into Christmas. Let's take the feast of Asherah, let's convert it into Easter. So you convert this, and you convert that. 
Even the array of gods was converted into saints to whom you could pray, so that the pagan could just slot into the Christian church and hardly notice the difference. And you feel that that's the goal of many messengers today, that people can just slot into church and hardly feel the difference. Well, why should they? Because Christians are reading the same books as they read. They're reading the same magazines as they read. They watch the same films as they themselves read. They browse the same things on the internet as they themselves do. They dance the same dances. They sing the same songs. But they still believe in Jesus. So you've got this little extra thing. You've got this little insurance policy tucked in your pocket. Otherwise, let's go on as we were. No, no, no. It's another Jesus. And therefore, it is another gospel which has been woven together into a spell by another spirit who is, in fact, the devil himself. When Paul says, who has bewitched you? He's actually... He's actually going behind the false teachers, is he not? He knows it's the false teachers, but what he's really saying is, who's behind all this? The devil. A pseudo-gospel to lead you astray. So it's easier to be religious than it is to be spiritual. That's the first thing. The second and last reason why these false teachers were changing the churches was because they simply wanted to please the culture to which they felt responsible. It was the Jewish religious culture in which they lived, and that Jewish religious culture had the power to persecute them. And therefore, let's please them. Make sure that all the churches please them. That's back to the text. Just go forward to it in verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12. As many as desire to make a good show in the flesh. These people who are wanting you to adopt uh, these um, days and months and years, the Jewish customs and so on, to take them into your faith. Don't, let any, don't put anything else out, but just take this in. These would compel you to be circumcised, and Paul gets to the real motive, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ themselves. Now isn't that revealing? We want to change the church so that we can avoid persecution. That's what they're saying. We want to change the church so we can fit comfortably into a Jewish culture of living. Interesting. Because people who are trying to preach another Jesus today in Reformed churches are trying to accommodate the culture and change us to conform to the culture so that People will be so annoyed with us. Uh, it's amazing how people try to present Christianity as something that the world should really find attractive. The world is not supposed to find Christianity attractive. It's supposed to find it challenging. It's supposed to find it quite uncomfortable. Until the Holy Spirit of God begins to alert them that this is actually true and right and just and holy and good. Until then, it's not for them. Why? Because it cuts across your sin. It cuts across the way you want to live your life. It demands that Jesus Christ sit on the throne of your heart, not somewhere on the periphery of your being. They wanted to avoid persecution. And they dressed it up as a kind of spiritual maturity. Oh, well, you can begin with Christ alone, but 
move on to circumcision and to all the rest. So Paul has two things to do, and I'm just closing with this, and it'll only take 30 seconds. The two things that he has to do in this letter are first remind them of his calling, who and what he is as, as a true apostle of Christ, a true minister of Christ. And we need to look at that. What is a true apostle and a true minister of Christ? The second thing he has to remind the Galatian churches of is what the gospel is actually all about. What it means to be a Christian, to carry the cross, self-denial, outside the camp, and take and despise the shame. And that will avoid them being bewitched or enchanted by a false gospel. Friends, make sure that you respect and embrace and value a Christ that is a prophet. You do everything he says as a teacher, that he's a priest, he's your only um, basis of forgiveness between you and God, and he's your king, unconditional obedience. And you either receive a whole Christ or no Christ at all. Until you receive a whole Christ, you don't receive a Christ at all. But when you receive him, you'll get a whole Christ. And you'll discover that a whole Christ is what your life needs. I wish I could convey to you, but I can't, uh, the difference between not being a Christian and being one, having no Christ and having a full Christ. Having a full Christ is what you really need and once you find him, you know that. May the Lord open your eyes to see it. Let us pray. O oh Lord, enable us to recognize the true gospel and to recognize the true Christ. And uh, grant us to acknowledge him, to come to him in faith, embracing his sacrifice for our sins, embracing his whole teaching for our life, and embracing his kingship to govern us. O oh Lord, bring us into that great and glorious kingdom over which he is even now presiding. And oh, for the eyes to see with faith, even into the heavens where now he reigns at the right hand of God. When we see so much confusion and disorder and darkness and disobedience, it is good to remember that none of this frustrates the eternal purpose of God and the kingship of our great and glorious Saviour. O Lord, we travail and may we travail until new births are seen amongst us. In the precious name of Christ we ask these things. Amen. Let's uh, <coughs> close by singing in Psalm 19 at verse 7. <coughs> God's first book of creation in the opening verses he turns to the second book of redemption where he says in verse 7 that God's law is perfect and converts the soul in sin and lies. He goes on to describe the excellencies of that law and the sweetness of it to those who come under it through Christ. Verses 7 to 11 we stand to sing.
Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.